Thank you for being here today. Uh, I know that this is uh, continuing to be an odd, an odd point in history. Uh, I was looking out this morning, and I'm just watching the way people interact, the way that they carefully avoid one another for the most part. And uh, I just don't think I'll ever forget it. I don't think many of us, uh, many of us will. Continuing to pray, obviously, that God delivers us soon, and that hopefully uh, things get more and more uh, consistent and more and more, I guess what we call normal, although life in this fallen world is anything but normal. But you know what I mean. Uh, thanks for being here. I'm so grateful that you found your way here. I don't know if you found your way here through a sign-up or an invitation from a friend, uh, but we are a part of, and I think we should be grateful, we are God's people. And despite all that we don't have and all that isn't normal today, we get to gather as his people, and so I'm grateful. I also want to acknowledge today, and uh, I don't know uh, exactly what the makeup of the room is, but I, knew there's, I know there's a few fathers uh, in our midst. Today is Father's Day. And I believe that though the Bible doesn't, you know, there's no verse that says set aside a particular Sunday in the third week of June and honor fathers. That's not a Bible verse, not a command. There's plenty of commands that say that we should give honor where honor is due. And so on a day like this, uh, we want to acknowledge, I'm going to take a moment in a, in a second and I want to pray uh, for dads. Fathering is an unbelievable task. Uh, it's unbelievable for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, because God has given fathers a unique role in the ordering of his world the impact, the blessing that dads are, their steadfastness, their strength, their discipline, their instruction, their work for family, the laying down of themselves in protection and in care, these, these things, so often as they are done well, imitate and point to the greater glory of God, our Creator, who calls Himself Heavenly Father. And wherever and whenever and no matter what, no matter what dad, and I know we could probably imagine the worst of the worst, but no matter what situation or how much grief or how much loss is there, there is in fathers a capacity and, uh, and moments of, of good that reveal a kind of glory that God implants in the earth. God's loved us by giving us fathers, and those are worthy things to, to honor. So today, as whatever that looks like, if that looks like phone calls or cards or, or reaching out, um, I... I'm hoping, my desire would be that dads this day are energized and strengthened for the task that God has given them, but that they also feel honored uh, by those who receive their blessing. So let's take a moment. I want to take a, a, just a second here and let's pray for dads, and then I'm going to open the Bible in a moment, so we're going to ask God to help us there. But let's, uh, let's pray. God, of all the ways that you've revealed yourself to us, you are completely other, you are beyond us, you're not just a slightly better human. Uh, you reside and exist completely in a plane unto yourself. But when you have communicated yourself, when you want us to know what you're like, you've chosen the imagery of a father. You're a perfect heavenly father. And so, God, I thank you for all the times, the moments in our earthly fathers that they have reflected the kind of care and love, the strength and the tenderness the correction and the instruction, the consistency, their presence, and the ways that we've received that uh, from dads here on earth, God, we say thank you. I pray as well for all the moments when we've felt a lack of fathering in our own lives or we've seen weaknesses or fallenness, specifically as a dad. God, for me and for the rest of us who are endeavoring to do this well, God, in all the ways that we fall short, I pray that today would be a day of encouragement, a blessing, that you'd give special grace to allow us this task to, to walk in it well. 
So God, whatever situation we're in, whatever context or whatever capacity we have, help us to leverage these moments to, uh, to honor, uh, to honor the fathers in our midst. We pray for that. And God, I ask now this Lord's Day, this day that we're here together, I pray that we'd understand the Bible better. I want to be helpful. We want to take seriously the words of Scripture and then to learn it together and to, to more than that, to embody it, to actually walk in what it says. So help us. Spirit of God, would you be here in our midst? We're distracted. We are stubborn. We're maybe confused. Uh, we're inconsistent. We're all of these things, but we're here and we're present and we're willing we desire for you to grow us. So we ask for that. Spirit of God, rest, work, move in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 4 is where we're going to be. First Peter chapter 4. We're in First Peter because really when the, when the pandemic started, uh, reading through and considering the message, it was just following, you know, just following and leading up to really the, a season that we were in lamenting. The, the church historically has taken the time leading up to Easter to be thinking about uh, getting low, and the pandemic certainly helped with that. And in considering and thinking about what to preach for the, the Sunday that we were going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the theme of First Peter came again and again and again. This idea, Peter is addressing a church that is in the midst of difficulty, of circumstances that are not what they planned, of suffering. And what he writes to them is, here's how you maintain hope. Here's how you grasp on the hope with white-knuckled, like a Chuck Norris-y kind of grip. Here's what you're going to do with hope in the midst of suffering in a difficult world. That's what 1 Peter is about. So we've come a long way now. Through a number of chapters, I've considered a lot of difficult things. I'll say thanks uh, the last couple of weeks, I think over the last month, uh, Zach preached on very difficult passages about obeying authorities and masters and the difficulty of God-given authority in the world, but the way that it's abused. We've considered husbands and wife, the husband and wife relationship and how difficult that can be and how do we navigate it. Then last week, Brian preached through this section at the end of chapter 3 with wonderful imagery about Jesus going and preaching to dead imprisoned spirits from the days of Noah things that are difficult. And I just want to say, and I want to point out, uh, I don't think he's listening in, but maybe in heaven I'll talk to him and I'll say something about this. But you know that Peter, at the end of 2 Peter, calls out the Apostle Paul. I don't know if you know this, but in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, he says, you know, the Apostle Paul, he writes things that are often difficult to understand. He kind of throws his writing under the bus a little bit. He's, a, he's critical of him. It's also a wonderful passage because he says, people twist these words as they do the other scriptures. So it gives us confidence that the early church saw the writings of Paul as scripture. But the funny thing is, Peter's throwing Paul into the bus. Like, you write difficult things. And now we just study the end of 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're like, yeah, you're right. You mean not like you write the crystal clear stuff about Jesus preaching to imprison dead spirits in the days of Noah. Like, that stuff's all perfectly easy to understand. So Peter needs to get a grip when it comes to that kind of stuff. What I'm saying is that I know that 1 Peter, especially what we've gone through over the last month, these aren't easy themes. These aren't things that are just like, oh, well, that's joyful. In other words, his response, here's what's interesting, his response to suffering from this early Christians is not to give them platitudes and to ignore difficult things. He hits them head on. In fact, he almost says, hey, if you want hope, if you want to grab hope in the midst of a difficult time like this, let's just get as difficult as we can get. We're going to name all of the problems. And now he's come to the beginning of chapter 4, 
And I believe what he's going to do is he's going to be counterintuitive. He's going to go against the grain again, and he's going to tell Christians that not only can you survive through suffering, because that's the first thought. Have you ever felt like that in life? You ever felt like things are so overwhelming and things are just swirling around, and you really just think to yourself, all of your prayers, like all you can muster is, I just want to survive. Like if I'm breathing at the end of this, I'm okay. And Peter says to them, this is what he's going to say at the start of verse 4, that for Christians who hope in Jesus Christ and have His Spirit living in them, that not only is the suffering that God ordains for our lives going to be survived, but it's going to be helpful to us in our pursuit of godliness. That Christians ought to view these times of suffering and difficulty as ways to encourage us to be holy, to be more like Him. And that, if that sounds difficult, you're right, it is. But God is for us and He's with us. So let's read about this in 1 Peter chapter 4 and consider it. I'm just going to read the first five verses of this fourth chapter. And we're going to see that Peter looks back at the suffering, compares it to Christ, and then says, now be holy. Here's what it says, starting in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I'm going to say that this pattern or this little passage, this section where Peter is encouraging, I'm going to use a few words that will help us to navigate how we get through this. And I'm going to say them like this. I think what Peter is saying is that in the midst of suffering, when we look to Jesus, this is what a Christian should do and should hope that the Spirit of God does in them. It's this little path. First, reckoned. There's some reckoning to do. It's a wonderful word. We need to recover it from, you know, only southern farmers or, you know, people in the country. I, don't, I never heard that word when I was a kid growing up, but it's a wonderful Bible word. So reckoned, second, steadfast, and then third, strange. That Christians, the way we view ourselves, the way we hold on to hope is to view ourselves and to realize that we are reckoned, steadfast, and strange. And I'm going to try to flesh those out a little bit and try to explain where I'm getting these things. The passage opens and he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. He's going to build the entire argument here. He's taking the suffering that those people are enduring. He's tying it to the suffering that Jesus went through. And he says, because we're one with Christ, now do this. And I use the word reckoned because he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And it's an interesting turn of phrase. Arm yourself, ready yourself. Imagine like putting on your armor and then getting weapons ready. In other words, you're going to go out into a world of suffering and difficulty. Here's what you need to prepare for. Now, there's other places in the Bible, you know, some of the phrases, the way we're supposed to get ready to live a holy life. This says, arm yourself, put on the weapons. There's other places where it says to gird up the loins of your mind. And it's the, the picture there is like when people used to wear long robes and they needed to run somewhere. Before they could run, they had to get ready. They would just like take all their, you know, you know like getting ready? You're seeing someone ready to fight, maybe they're doing this and taking off rings and they're like stretching out. Like when the guy takes the shirt off, you know it's going down. Like, you know what I mean? Like, get ready is what he's saying. Make yourself ready 
with this way of thinking. Arm yourself with thinking. That's what he says. Arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. Well, what way of thinking? This is what he means. He says, reckon yourself as in Christ in his suffering and his death. To be a Christian means that we don't come to Jesus and say, identify with him for all of the promises only. All the good stuff that Jesus can give, I'm, I'm with him. I'm in Christ. He says, no, no, the first place to start, to find real hope in a difficult world, the first place to start, if you were to come to Christ, you must start by reckoning yourself. Count yourself. That's what the word means, literally. Count yourself. Have this way of thinking. I died in Christ to sin. This idea... I think points to the concept of what the Bible calls justification, that there is a real truth, that if you're a Christian, there is a sense in which you have been completely and utterly freed from sin. God sees you as righteous. Everything past, present, future paid for, stamped, gone, not guilty, declared. And the Bible's consistent in this. One of the ways that it has us deal with sin is to say to ourselves, I died to sin. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, that's how he handles sin in himself and in others. He says to them, don't you know you died to sin? How can you live in it anymore? If you were baptized in Christ, you were baptized into his death. So if you've died to sin, you can't live in it any longer. And Peter says to them now, here's the first way to live a more holy life. Remind yourself, reckon yourself, arm yourself with this way of thinking. I am in Christ. I'm a new creation. The old has passed away. I am dead to sin. Now, I know that immediately when you read this, any person who's honest about their actual life reads this and says, but that can't possibly be true. What does it mean whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? Many of you have suffered in the flesh, and I know you still sin. I mean, I'm not calling you out individually. You don't have to confess right here. But I think we all know that it's true, that it's possible to continue sinning. But the, this is the idea. Christians live in an in-between world. We have received all that we need from Christ. The, our fate, our destiny, if you want to use like such movie words. I feel like I just came from Hallmark or something. So our fate and our destiny, our, our end goal, our destination has been sealed. It's over. It's why Jesus on the cross says, it is finished there is a reality to this. If you are in Christ, you are dead to sin. It no longer holds you. You've been freed. But we know, and so the Bible says things like this. We say, he says it clearly. You've been freed. And then there's going to be a second part. We'll get to it in a minute, and I acknowledge this. But we still live in a fallen world, and we still fight the flesh. In the same way that Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, and yet the world still rages in many ways. So what does it mean it was finished? There's an in-between world that we're living in right now. But I think what he's trying to tell them is this. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What he means is, if you are still here, this is good evidence that you're in Christ. Now imagine this. Imagine you're one of the recipients who's hearing the first time that this letter's been written. Do you know the condition of the people who received this letter? They were being persecuted to the point where it would have been a common thing for people that they knew and loved to have worshipped one week with them, and the next week to have been executed publicly. It could have been a common thing for people to lose their jobs, their land, their standing in families because of their faith. It was increasingly getting to the point where the entire nation 
where Rome itself would blame their problems on Christians. They were in a horrible spot. Many of them were tempted, I'm sure, to say, God, are you there? Have you abandoned us? I'm in Christ. I'm dead to sin. Everything is wonderful. They step out the front door. They're reviled and punched in the face. And I think this is what Peter is saying. If you're still reading, if you're still here, you must be in Christ because there's no other reason for your steadfastness, for your consistency. You can reckon yourself in Christ because if you've endured suffering and you're still here, it's a miracle. Do you remember the parable of Jesus with the sower and the, and the, seed, the, sower and the seeds? Yeah, and the soils, sower, seed, soil. Remember, he throws them out and he says that there is a case where the seed takes root and the plant comes up, but over the course of time, the difficulties of this life, the suffering people endure, it begins to choke it out. This is, this is plant choking. That's how that works. This is, is choke, chokes it out and they go away. And so Peter says to them, as counterintuitively, as difficult as, po- as possible, the Christians all rush him. They say, would you help us? Please write something, Apostle Peter. We're suffering. Has God abandoned us? What's going on? And what Peter says to them is, oh my goodness, you guys are still here? If you've suffered in the flesh and you're still naming Jesus, rejoice. It must be real. Reckon yourselves. You're actually in him. And this kind of thing, I think, is a proper and a wonderful balance for Christians. The second part, this idea of being steadfast in holiness, I'm going to get there because I know that this life is difficult. But many of us, I think, would be encouraged rather than constantly thinking about how far we have yet to go. Or we think about the mission of the church, and it can be very easy for me to be anxious about it and be like, oh man, how do we get people engaged? And like, I just wish that they had more joy, and I wish that they could come, and that they would experience life. And like, why aren't there, why aren't there people, why aren't we witnessing, and then people just coming and falling on their faces, and you just wish there was more and more and more because you want to see good things. And I think what Peter is trying to say is, well, let's just pause for a second. Yes, pursue good things. But think about the sin in your life and think about the doubt and the temptations and think about the weaknesses that you have inherent in you. Think about the sin of others. Think about the difficulty of the world. Not only the difficulty of the world and the real sins, but just the distractions. Think about how easy it would be to give up faith. I mean, have you ever, have you ever slept in and then had a mimosa at a Sunday brunch? I mean, just imagine, right? The world has a million different things to offer. And Peter says, hold on, before you complain and wonder why we're not better off, remember that to be reckoned in Christ, look back and say, I cannot believe how far we've come. Nothing in me deserves to be where I am. Nothing in me would point to the fact that I'm still here. But if you've suffered in the flesh, it's bright evidence that the Spirit of God is active in you. Are you still listening? Peter says, Rejoice. God has you with a grip and he'll never let you go. He's called you. He's chosen you. You are his and you will never be taken from his hand. That's the kind of thinking we need. So before you stand up and go out into a suffering world and feel the temptations of your flesh and all the passions that wage war, he says, just remember this. Reckon yourselves. Arm yourselves. I can't believe we've come this far. So first task Peter actually says, through suffering, you can be encouraged. When a church is persecuted, when its people suffer, it is refined, and there is a deep and a bright life. 
So this concept of ceasing from sin, as I think is the idea, we reckon ourselves, we say this is true. I'm in Christ and I'm forgiven and I'm free. I'm dead to sin. He also includes the second thing, though, and this is a path to the way that we live in suffering. First, we reckon ourselves. That's an accounting term. That's a not guilty term. That's a legal declaration. This one, this next one, I use the word steadfast. He says that we should be steadfast in holiness, and that's what it means to live day by day. You don't just get over pride. I was proud yesterday. I confess Jesus today. I'll never struggle with pride for the rest of my life. That's just not how this works. So he has a promise, and he says, here's what happens. God is at work in you, not only for the justification part, to reckon yourselves dead, but he says in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And he goes on to describe all of the ways, or some of the ways that human passions would play out. I'm going to get to those in a minute, because it's an amazing list. But he basically says this, for the rest of the time in your flesh, you are going to be working out the thing you know to be true in Christ. And this, I would say, is a good theological word, a Bible word, sanctification, which is a process. It means that tomorrow you're going to be working out in your flesh the idea that you're rejecting and putting to death your own passions. If you are to come to Christ and to be found in Him, you must also be found in Him in death. And this happens day by day by day by day for the rest of the time in your flesh. And maybe I'm the only one that reads it like that, but that's how I get the sense from Peter. We reckoned ourselves, we're in Christ, this is great, but then he says that we will live this way for the rest. Have you ever felt like that about your life, your spiritual life? For the rest of my days in the flesh. There is a sense in which our life, our inner life, our righteousness, the holiness with which we are called to walk is an ongoing war, a battle. And the battle that is waged, the thing that is required of us is that we would put to death the human passions that beg for our worship and our allegiance. I like the phrase here, human passions. It's about as broad as you could get to, to fill up any kind of sin. I don't know about you, but sometimes I look around the world and the thing that I'm most astonished by is just how ingenious humans can be at sinning. You ever feel that? You ever think to yourself, maybe in your own heart or in your own mind, that you stop doing something because you think, well, I'm just going to stop that, and then somehow the bitterness just finds a different place to live? You ever been amazed at the depth of pettiness that people have? You ever think to yourself, I cannot believe how far and wide relational tension and conflict can spread. There's a proverb uh, in the middle of Proverbs that says that to an unrighteous person, evil is like sport, which is so interesting because you know how humans are like, with sports, right? We make them up. I mean, sports, there's constantly new sports. We watched an Olympic thing this last week. Do you know that in the, in the Olympics, they're supposed to be, aren't they supposed to be happening like right now? Or in a month or something? So I know some of you, that's a sad, for all of us, it's a sad thing for all of humanity. It's going to be next year now. You know that there's new Olympic sports for next year? You ready for this? Gold medal, skateboarding. This is, an, this is a sport, I guess, and snowboarding is already in the Winter Olympics. I'm trying to think of some of the other, uh, the other new sports that are going to come in. Um, they got rid of, here's all I know. This is the long and short of it. They got rid of baseball and added skateboarding. That's all you need to know about the ingenuity of the human spirit. 
Sports change. We come up with new ways. Any way to compete that you can possibly compete, we come up with it. And the Bible says that human passions, that's why it says no longer for human passions, this is about as broad as he can get because it encompasses all that we might be tempted to. So many of us feel righteous and superior because we look at the sins of others and we say, I'm not tempted with that. So we let ourselves off the hook. And Peter just says in broad terms, although all of us have human passions. And sanctification means, and I think Christians should say this clearly, suffering the world, suffering either the sin and the consequences of your own sin or suffering in the consequences of the sin of others against you. That's really what chapters 2 and 3 is about. What do you do when others sin against you? And Peter says that it's the sin of others that should make you long day by day to say, I want to kill sin in me. It should make you sick of it. Like you just hate it. You watch the suffering of others. You feel the suffering in yourself. You watch what you inflict on others. And you say, God, please make me holy. That's what Peter says. This can happen for those who are in Christ. So, some paths. A way, a way to grow in the midst of suffering. To not just survive with hope, but to actually come out and to say, I feel strength and I feel like I'm growing. One of the ways we do this, we reckon ourselves dead to sin. So in other words, we claim what is true, most true eternally about us. That no matter our circumstances or our weakness right now, we're in Christ forever. It's done. Secondly, we remain steadfast in holiness. We say, as long as I'm breathing, I'm going to put to death my human passions, the things that I desire and I want to follow God. Now here's where it's going to lead us. Here's where it's going to lead us, and this is an interesting thing. It's going to lead us to be strange. Did you know that? The call to follow Jesus makes you weird. Have you embraced this yet? You must be weird. That's what Peter says. Here's what's going to happen. Increasingly, as a world positions itself opposed to the things of God, if you're in Christ and you're trying to follow hard, fast after Him, here's what's going to happen. You will feel weird. So he says in verse 3, let me tell you what this is going to look like in practice. Verses 1 and 2 are very theoretical. Have this thinking in yourselves of Christ who suffered. And then for the days of your flesh, according to the will of God, put aside human passions. And then he gets very nitty-gritty about the way this will work out in verses 3 and 4 and 5. In verse 3, he says, the time that has passed suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do. In other words, he just says, enough. You've done that enough. I love the, I love the honesty here. Peter is not pretending that the people that he's writing to are wonderful fairies who have never done anything wrong. He's like, no, listen, the time has passed. You screwed up enough. You gave enough of your life to sin. That, that's over. For doing what the Gentiles want to do, and remember this ties to human passions, left to our own devices, we must be careful to watch our desires. Our desires lead almost all of our activity in the world. He said, the time has passed for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And then he gives this unbelievable list. Living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. And this is where the strangeness comes in. If you're committed to the first two things, I'm reckoning myself dead in Christ. I'm committed to walking with him, being steadfast in holiness. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same, what an imagery, same flood of debauchery. With respect to this, they are surprised. First, they're surprised. You're strange. You're weird. Imagine the moment when the people around you, because of something you revealed, 
thought you were the weirdest person in the world. Can you imagine moments like this? I'm going to start with an easy one. I'll start with like a simple one. I went to seminary. Okay, I went to a seminary. Like an actual Christians go there to study the Bible. They're seeped in this kind of stuff. And one time amongst the midst of my new friends, the people that I was meeting there, I confessed out loud that I had never watched the Lord of the Rings movies. I'd never seen them. The room was aghast. Like just, what in the world? And people, people looked at me sideways. They punched me. No, they didn't do that. But there was, it felt that way internally. I mean, it had been a long time, a long time since middle school for me. But there I was in the midst of all this group of friends, and I say this out loud, and I really felt strange. They were surprised. I want you to know, not out of fear or like peer pressure or anything, but I did watch all three of them in the next couple months. It wasn't, but it wasn't because of peer pressure. But I, I confessed this thing, and I knew right then what it felt like to be different. And here's what Peter's saying. Christians, It's going to be impossible, and this is the thing we're tempted to do all the time. We want to follow Jesus and have him sincerely at the center of our lives, and we want to be at peace with all of the famous people in the world and all of the things that it offers. And what he says is, just get used to this. The more you follow the will of God and put aside the human passions of the flesh, and the more you actually have the Spirit of God in you giving you self-control to not just do what you want, What's the, what's the anthem of our world? You do you. You do you. And if you even for a second have someone tell you, I don't think you should do you, that might be wrong. Rage. If This is what Peter's saying. Here's the deal. If you put aside the passions of the flesh and say, no, 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 I don't have as my anthem, I'm just going to do whatever I want, you're going to be weird in the world. There's going to be times. And so I said that's a simple one, Lord of the Rings or a thing. But you could go through any list of areas of your life. There have been times when you seemed odd or out of step. Simply because, for the sake of being a Christian, because of your conscience, and I know these are conscience issues. These are, a lot of times these are very individual and contextual. Because of conscience issues, you said, I just can't. I just won't, or I will. Holiness is as much what we do as what we don't do. I think that's going to be important. We'll get to that next week, right? So holiness does not mean all the things that I avoid. If you went and lived in a cloud by yourself for the rest of your life, that's not God's will for you, okay? So we're going to get to that. For now, though, he does say you don't join them. This has a negative connotation. All the things you don't do are surprised when you don't join them. Here's a couple questions I read through this and I think to myself. How often in my life am I aware of and am I willing to endure being odd for Christ's sake? Is there anything, is there any situation that I could point to where the explanation, not nuanced away, not caveated, the explanation is simply because I'm a Christian, X, Y, Z. I heard wonderful advice in families one time. This guy basically just said this, he said, you know, I really, we committed in our family that we were going to not explain away, not apologize, not caveat things, but as much as possible, when necessary, if our children asked us why X, Y, Z, that our explanation, it would be sufficient in and of itself, we talk about it and flesh it out, but the basic explanation would be something like this, we don't do that because we're Christians, just because, because we're Christians, or on the flip side, 
We do that because we're Christians. In other words, to teach and disciple people to get used to the idea that following Jesus has claims on our life. It means that we can't spend all of our time as individuals or as a church corporately going to the world and basically saying something like this, I promise we are basically 99.9% normal, exactly like you. Just come on and hang out with us. We're just like you. This doesn't win the world. We win the world with weirdness. God-centered, human passion setting aside weirdness. That's how you win the world. That's what Peter is saying. Be strange and rejoice in it. It means that we do not see the ultimate goal of life to get as rich as possible. It means that we don't see the ultimate goal of life as to get as much fulfillment, pleasure as possible. It means that with our stuff, we are generous when it doesn't benefit us. It means with our time, we give up Sunday mornings and gather with God's people. It means that we seek the downtrodden. It means that when presented with moments to flaunt our pride or to make ourselves much at the expense of others, we reject these things. It means that when we're invited into any number of this flood of debauchery, it means when the flood of debauchery comes, we let it pass right on by. This is what it means to be strange, to be in Christ. And might I say that increasingly, the hope for the world, if the world is dead set on being opposed to the will of God, the hope for the world is a church that is more distinct, not a church that is more cuddled up with the way that the world functions. Now, there are times, and I'll say this, we shouldn't seek out being weird. Now, some of you are weird by accident, and some of you are weird on purpose. There's a huge difference, okay? Just like when the Bible says, speak the truth in love, it doesn't mean go out of your way to go being a jerk. It simply means don't be a coward and speak when necessary. It means the same thing here. We don't go out of our way to do everything different so that we point out and make people feel bad and guilty about what they do. It does mean this, that when the Spirit of God checks your heart, and you realize that there is some pursuit, some activity, some way of thinking that is not pleasing to God. If sanctification cries out from your soul and says, I want to love what God loves and I want to hate what He hates, then when that happens, you are joyfully weird. And it's not even pleasant. You know how in our culture today, like being a nerd and geeky is considered kind of cool? You know, it's like the most cool person in the world they have more style and charisma and confidence than ever, and they put on some weird glasses, and they're like, aren't I a geek? Like, no, you're not a geek. You're just pretending. Like, this, is a, this isn't a pretending to be weird. And when it says at the beginning, they were surprised. Like, I used a very simple thing where I said, I didn't watch Lord of the Rings, and ha, 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 everybody got mad at me. But it doesn't end that way. I know that for many people, to be strange for Jesus includes a far greater cost. It means you can't do business the way that other people do business. It means that you feel left out of social gatherings and engagements. It means a consistent and persistent difficulty in resisting sin. At one point, Scripture says you've not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. That's costly pursuit of holiness. And Peter mentions it. He says at first they were just surprised that they didn't join them, but then they malign you. It's one thing to be weird in a kind of quaint way. Like, we have an interesting Pinterest channel as a church. 
Are they channels? I don't know what they are. That's one thing. It's a different thing to consistently be strange for Christ like the church in this passage was. In in Peter, they were being killed and reviled and set aside for their faith. And what the encouragement here to us is that a living faith, a pursuit of Jesus in all of our fullness, means that at times we will say yes simply because of Jesus. And at times we will say no simply because of Jesus. And we can trust that eventually everything will be judged well because God, the judge of the whole world, will be the one to whom we give an account. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. That's how he ends this particular passage. Now, I'm not going to meddle. And I know that in a moment here, I'm going to tread dangerously close. I'm like on a, on a, one of those wires, like a live wire thing, a tightrope. That's a good word for it. They should call it that. Yeah, so a tightrope, right? I know I'm going to be tightrope walking here and that there's some people who would feel uncomfortable and say like, well, but you mean like we just avoid a bunch of stuff? Isn't that kind of legalistic? And I just want to say as a baseline standard, read the Bible again, like saying to Christians, to one another, be holy, be like Jesus is never legalism. It never is, okay? So that's just a standard at the baseline of it. Secondarily, though, I would want to say something like this. I don't know what category it is for you. Peter's very broad, human passions. But maybe it would be helpful at least one time or another to say to yourself, in the roles that I have, in the areas that I consume things in life, in what I'm tempted toward, is there a filter at all? How often or how willing are you to say, yeah, I'm going to disengage because of X, Y, Z. And I'm just going to, I'll bring up a few categories of things that I think are worth thinking through. I'm not going to name names or say whatever, but I mean media consumption in America. Are Christians different with media consumption in America simply because we long to be holy and to be found in Christ? In other words, let's just say, I don't think it is, it's not the point, but if Lord of the Rings, right, had somehow pricked my conscience and made me feel like this is going to make me fall away from my faith or something, am I willing to say, you know, I have a filter for that. I don't care if everyone laughs at me for the rest of time. I'm just not going to engage. I used to tell students in student ministry in my early 20s when I was hanging out with middle school and high school kids, so many of them are wrestling with these things, and how do I make these decisions? And I remember telling them, here's what you should be careful for. I don't know you guys really well, but I've been around you long enough that I know that you have a phrase that you think is a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's like the monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card. They would come, and they would describe the most crazy things to me. I mean, middle school crazy, but still pretty crazy. Flood of debauchery kind of stuff that they watched or that they were repeating and engaging in, and you could tell they were all a little nervous about it, and they didn't know what to say, and everything was fine as soon as one person uttered the phrase. So this was their get-out-of-jail-free card but it's so funny though, but it's so funny, but it's so funny. And I remember at one point I was just talking to them, I was like, what do you think that means? Tell me, what does but it's so funny mean? Does that mean that all of your difficulty or your embarrassment or your shame for that goes away and it's okay? Do you think that God just kind of says, I have standards, unless it's funny. And the question becomes, the question becomes, Maybe in that area of life. It could be business. It could be media. It could be attractional kind of dating relationship stuff. It could be philosophy. It could be use of recreation time. Are we weird enough? That's the question. 
That's what Peter wants to know. There's a phrase, Austin, Texas used to have a little refrain, keep Austin weird. They're getting massive now and growing a ton. I don't know how it's going to work for them. But a similar thing here. Peter basically is saying this, keep Christianity weird. Because the world, the world is not going the way of Christ, so there will be times when we clash. And I hope that makes sense. And I would encourage you, if it, it probably needs to be with others, if you cannot right now think of moments when you have to put to death the passions of the flesh and say, I'm just going to say no. If you can't think of a single thing that you struggle with in sin areas, ask someone who knows you for even more than five minutes. They'll help you. So either by yourself, if God gives you the spiritual awareness, or with someone else, I would take stock. What are the ways and what are the things? And how am I, how am I making sure that I'm not just following along in the flood? That's, that's the question. This is not an easy thing to do. It's a conscience thing. I would encourage you not to judge one another op- openly over these kinds of things. I mean, if you need to, you can ask. The Bible also has things to say when people do get pulled along in the flood. It says that in a spirit of repentance, if they come in a spirit of repentance, restore them with gentleness. So pursuing holiness does not have to create a kind of gotcha KGB culture in the church. God desires for us to be holy, and we should encourage one another that way. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would move by your Spirit. Spirit of God, would you take, if there's anything helpful that I said, anything generic, anything general, and if there are particular applications, I pray, God, that you would give us confidence, courage, strength to put away sin. I pray that individually for me. I pray that for our church collectively. We want to be like Jesus. We want to love what God loves and hate what he hates. And I pray, God, you'd give us strength, specifically in the moment when it's going to put us at odds a little bit or we'll be seen as different or reviled for these things. God, give us grace in those moments especially. We thank you for this day. We thank you for time together as your people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.